Chapter Twenty Two, Part Five of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot, translated by Robert Black. Chapter Twenty Two, The Hundred Years' War, Charles V, Part Five. On arriving at Toulouse from Avignon, du Gousclin and his bands, with a strength, it is said, of thirty thousand men, took the decided resolution of going into Spain to support the cause of Prince Henry of Transtamar against the King of Castile, his brother, Don Pedro the Cruel. The Duke of Anjou, governor of Languedoc, gave them encouragement, by agreement, no doubt, with King Charles V, and from anxiety on his own part to rid his province of such inconvenient visitors. On the 1st of January, 1366, de Gousclin entered Barcelona, whither Henry of Transtamar came to join him. There is no occasion to give a detailed account here of that expedition, which appertains much more to the history of Spain than to that of France. There was a brief or almost no struggle. Henry of Transtamar was crowned king, first at Calahorra, and afterwards at Burgos. Don Pedro, as much despised before long as he was already detested, fled from Castile to Andalusia, and from Andalusia to Portugal, whose king would not grant him an asylum in his dominions, and he ended by embarking at Coruna for Bordeaux, to implore the assistance of the Prince of Wales, who gave him a warm and magnificent reception. Edward III, King of England, had been disquieted by the march of the Grand Company into Spain, and had given John Chandos and the rest of his chief commanders in Guienne orders to be vigilant in preventing the English from taking part in the expedition against his cousin, the King of Castile. But several of the English chieftains, serving in the bands and with du Gousclin, set at naught this prohibition, and contributed materially to the fall of Don Pedro. Edward III did not consider that the matter was any infraction, on the part of France, of the Treaty of Bretigny, and continued to live at peace with Charles V, testifying his displeasure, however, all the same. But when Don Pedro had reached Bordeaux, and had told the Prince of Wales that, if he obtained the support of England, he would make the Prince's eldest son, Edward, King of Galicia, and share amongst the Prince's warriors the treasure he had left in Castile, so well concealed that he alone knew where, the knights of the Prince of Wales, says Froissart, gave ready heed to his words, for English and Gascons are by nature covetous. The Prince of Wales immediately summoned the barons of Aquitaine, and on the advice they gave him, sent four knights to London to ask for instructions from the king his father. Edward III assembled his chief counsellors at Westminster, and finally it seemed to all course due and reasonable on the part of the Prince of Wales to restore and conduct the King of Spain to his kingdom, to which end they wrote official letters from the king and the council of England to the prince and the barons of Aquitaine. When the said barons heard the letters read, they said to the prince, my lord, we will obey the command of the king, our master, and your father. It is but reason, and we will serve you on this journey, and King Pedro also. But we would know who shall pay us and deliver us our wages, for one does not take men-at-arms away from their homes to go to a warfare in a foreign land, without they be paid and delivered. If it were a matter touching our dear lord your father's affairs, or your own, or your honour, or our country's, we would not speak thereof so much beforehand as we do. Then the Prince of Wales looked towards the Prince Don Pedro, and said to him, Sir King, you hear what these gentlemen say. To answer is for you, who have to employ them. 
Then the king, Don Pedro, answered the prince, My dear cousin, so far as my gold, my silver, and all my treasure which I have brought with me hither, and which is not a thirtieth part so great as that which there is yonder, will go, I am ready to give it and share it amongst your gentry. You say well, said the prince, and for the residue I will be debtor to them, and I will lend you all you shall have need of until we be in Castile. By my head, answered the king, Don Pedro, you will do me great grace and courtesy. When the English and Gascon chieftains who had followed Du Gusclin into Spain heard of the resolutions of their king, Edward the Third, and the preparations made by the Prince of Wales for going and restoring Don Pedro to the throne of Castile, they withdrew from the cause which they had just brought to an issue to the advantage of Henry of Transtamer, separated from the French captain who had been their leader, and marched back into Aquitaine, quite ready to adopt the contrary cause, and follow the Prince of Wales in the service of Don Pedro. The greater part of the adventurers, Burgundian, Picard, Champagnies, Norman, and others who had enlisted in the bands which Du Gusclin had marched out of France, likewise quitted him, after reaping the fruits of their raid, and recrossed the Pyrenees to go and resume in France their life of roving and pillage. There remained in Spain about fifteen hundred men-at-arms faithful to Du Gusclin, himself faithful to Henry of Transtamer, who had made him constable of Castile. Amidst all these vicissitudes, and at the bottom of all events as well as of all hearts, there still remained the greater fact of the period, the struggle between the two kings of France and England for dominion in that beautiful country which, in spite of its dismemberment, kept the name of France. Edward III in London and the Prince of Wales at Bordeaux could not see, without serious disquietude, the most famous warrior amongst the French crossing the Pyrenees with a following for the most part French, and setting upon the throne of Castile a prince necessarily allied to the King of France. The question of rivalry between the two kings and the two peoples had thus been transferred into Spain, and for the moment the victory remained with France. After several months' preparation, the Prince of Wales, purchasing the complicity of the King of Navarre, marched into Spain in February 1367, with an army of twenty-seven thousand men, and John Chandos, the most able of the English warriors. Henry of Transtamar had troops more numerous, but less disciplined and experienced. The two armies joined battle on the 3rd of April, 1367, at Nahara or Navarrete, not far from the Ebro. Disorder and even sheer rout soon took place amongst that of Henry, who flung himself before the fugitives, shouting, "'Why would you thus desert and betray me, ye who have made me king of Castile? Turn back and stand by me, and by the grace of God the day shall be ours.' Du Gusclin and his men-at-arms maintained the fight with stubborn courage, but at last they were beaten, and either slain or taken. To the last moment Du Gusclin, with his back against a wall, defended himself heroically against a host of assailants. The Prince of Wales, coming up, cried out, "'Gentle marshals of France, and you too, Bertrand, yield yourselves to me.' "'Why, yonder men are my foes,' cried the King, Don Pedro. "'It is they who took from me my kingdom, and on them I mean to take vengeance.' Du Gusclin, darting forward, struck so rough a blow with his sword at Don Pedro, that he brought him fainting to the ground, and then turning to the Prince of Wales, said, Nathless, I give up my sword to the most valiant prince on earth. The Prince of Wales took the sword, and charged the captal of Buc with the prisoner's keeping. Aha, Sir Bertrand, said the captal to Du Gusclin, you took me at the Battle of Cockerell, and to-day I've got you. Yes, replied Du Gusclin, but at Cockerell I took you myself, and here you are only my keeper. The battle of Nahara being over, and Don Pedro the Cruel restored to a throne which he was not to occupy for long, 
the Prince of Wales returned to Bordeaux with his army and his prisoner, Du Gusclin, whom he treated courteously, at the same time that he kept him pretty strictly. One of the English chieftains who had been connected with Du Gusclin at the time of his expedition into Spain, Sir Hugh Cavalry, tried one day to induce the Prince of Wales to set the French warrior at liberty. "'Sir,' said he, "'Bertrand is a right loyal knight, but he is not a rich man, or in a state to pay much money. He would have good need to end his captivity on easy terms.' "'Let be,' said the prince, "'I have no care to take aught of his. I will cause his life to be prolonged in spite of himself. If he were released, he would be in battle again, and always a making war.' After supper, Hugh, without any beating about the bush, told Bertrand the prince's answer. "'Sir,' he said, "'I cannot bring about your release.' "'Sir,' said Bertrand, "'think no more of it. I will leave the matter to the decision of God, who is a good and just master.' Some time after, Dugus Glan, having sent a request to the Prince of Wales to admit him to ransom, the Prince, one day when he was in a gay humour, had him brought up, and told him that his advisers had urged him not to give him his liberty so long as the war between France and England lasted. "'Sir,' said Dugus Glan to him, "'then I am the most honoured knight in the world, for they say in the kingdom of France and elsewhere that you are more afraid of me than of any other.' "'Think you, then, it is for your knighthood that we do keep you?' said the Prince." "'Nay, by St. George, fix you your own ransom, and you shall be released.' Du Gusclin proudly fixed his ransom at a hundred thousand francs, which seemed a large sum even to the Prince of Wales. "'Sir,' said Du Gusclin to him, "'the king in whose keeping is France will lend me what I lack, and there is not a spinning wench in France who would not spin to gain for me what is necessary to put me out of your clutches.' The advisers of the Prince of Wales would have him think better of it, and break his promise, but that which we have agreed to do with him we will hold to, said the prince. It would be a shame and confusion of face to us if we could be reproached with not setting him to ransom, when he is ready to set himself down at so much as to pay a hundred thousand francs. Prince and knight were both as good as their word. Du Gusclin found amongst his Breton friends a portion of the sum he wanted. Charles V lent him thirty thousand Spanish doubloons, which by a deed of December twenty-seventh, thirteen sixty-seven, Du Gusclin undertook to repay and at the beginning of 1368 the Prince of Wales set the French warrior at liberty. The first use du Gusclin made of it was to go and put his name and his sword at the service first of the Duke of Anjou, governor of Languedoc, who was making war in Provence against Queen Joan of Naples, and then of his Spanish patron, Henry of Transtamar, who had recommenced the war in Spain against his brother, Pedro the Cruel, whom he was before long to dethrone for the second time and slay with his own hand. But whilst Du Gusclin was taking part in this settlement of the Spanish question, important events called him back to the north of the Pyrenees, for the service of his own king, the defence of his own country, and the aggrandizement of his own fortunes. The English and Gascon bands which, in 1367, had recrossed the Pyrenees with the Prince of Wales, after having restored Don Pedro the Cruel to the throne of Castile, had not disappeared. Having no more to do in their own prince's service, they had spread abroad over France, which they called their apartment, and recommenced, in the countries between the Seine and the Loire, their life of vagabondage and pillage. A general outcry was raised. It was the Prince of Wales, men said, who had let them loose, and the people called them the host army of England. A proceeding of the Prince of Wales himself had the effect of adding, to the rage of the people, that of the aristocratic classes. He was lavish of expenditure, and held at Bordeaux a magnificent court, for which the revenues from his domains and ordinary resources were insufficient. 
so he imposed a tax for five years of ten sous per hearth or family, in order to satisfy, he said, the large claims against him. In order to levy this tax legally, he convoked the estates of Aquitaine, first at Niort, and then successively at Angoulême, Poitiers, Bordeaux, and Bergerac, but nowhere could he obtain the vote he demanded. When we obeyed the king of France, said the Gascons, we were never so aggrieved with the subsidies, hearth taxes, or gables, and we will not be so long as we can defend ourselves. The Prince of Wales persisted in his demands. He was ill and irritable, and he was becoming truly the Black Prince. The Aquitanians, too, became irritated. The Prince's more temperate advisers, even those of English birth, tried in vain to move him from his stubborn course. Even John Chandos, the most notable as well as the wisest of them, failed, and withdrew to his domain of Saint-Savour and Normandy, that he might have nothing to do with measures of which he disapproved. Being driven to extremity, the principal lords of Aquitaine, the counts of Comminges, of Almagnac, of Perigord, and many barons besides, set out for France, and made complaint on the 30th of June, 1368, before Charles V and his peers, on account of the grievances which the Prince of Wales was purposed to put on them. They had recourse, they said, to the King of France as their sovereign lord, who had no power to renounce his suzerainty or the jurisdiction of his court of peers and of his parliament. Nothing could have corresponded better with the wishes of Charles V. For eight years past he had taken to heart the Treaty of Bretigny, and he was as determined not to miss as he was patient in waiting for an opportunity for a breach of it but he was too prudent to act with a precipitation which would have given his conduct an appearance of a premeditated and deep-laid purpose, for which there was no legitimate ground. He did not care to entertain at once and unreservedly the appeal of the Aquitanian lords. He gave them a gracious reception, and made them great cheer and rich gifts, but he announced his intention of thoroughly examining the stipulations of the Treaty of Bretigny and the rights of his kingship. He sent for into his council chamber all the charters of the peace, and then he had them read on several days and at full leisure. He called into consultation the schools of Bologna, of Montpellier, of Toulouse, and of Orléans, and the most learned clerks of the papal court. It was not until he had thus ascertained the legal means of maintaining that the stipulations of the Treaty of Bretigny had not all of them been performed by the King of England, and that consequently the King of France had not lost all his rights of suzerainty over the ceded provinces, that on the 25th of January, 1369, just six months after the appeal of the Aquitanian lords had been submitted to him, he adopted it, in the following terms, which he addressed to the Prince of Wales at Bordeaux, and which are here curtailed in their legal expressions. Charles, by the grace of God, King of France, to our nephew, the Prince of Wales, and of Aquitaine, greeting. Whereas many prelates, barons, knights, universities, communes, and colleges of the country of Gascony and the Duchy of Aquitaine have come thence into our presence, that they might have justice touching certain undue grievances and vexations, which you, through weak counsel and silly advice, have designed to impose upon them, whereat we are quite astonished. We of our kingly majesty and lordship do command you to come to our city of Paris, in your own person, and to present yourself before us in our chamber of peers, for to hear justice touching the said complaints and grievances proposed by you to be done to your people, which claims to have resort to our court, and be it as quickly as you may." When the Prince of Wales read this letter, says Froissart, he shook his head, and looked askant at the aforesaid Frenchman, and when he had thought a while, he answered, We will go willingly at our own time, since the King of France doth bid us, but it shall be with our basque on our head, and with sixty thousand men at our back. 
it was a declaration of war, and deeds followed at once upon words. Edward III, after a short and fruitless attempt at an accommodation, assumed on the 3rd of June, 1369, the title of King of France, in order to levy of all his subjects between sixteen and sixty, laic or ecclesiastical, for the defence of England, threatened by a French fleet which was cruising on the Channel. He sent reinforcements to the Prince of Wales, whose brother, the Duke of Lancaster, landed with an army at Calais, and offered to all the adventurers with whom Europe was teeming possession of all the fiefs they could conquer in France. Charles V, on his side, vigorously pushed forward his preparations. He had begun them before he showed his teeth, for as early as the 19th of July, 1368, he had sent into Spain ambassadors with orders to conclude an alliance with Henry of Transtamar against the King of England and his son, whom he called the Duke of Aquitaine. On the 12th of April, 1369, he signed the treaty which, by a contract of marriage between his brother Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, and the Princess Marguerite of Flanders, transferred the latter rich province to the House of France. Lastly, he summoned to Paris Du Gusclin, who since the recovery of his freedom had been fighting at one time in Spain, and at another in the south of France, and announced to him his intention of making him constable. "'Dear sir and noble king,' said the honest and modest Breton, "'I do pray you to have me excused. I am a poor knight and a petty bachelor. The office of constable is so grand and noble that he who would well discharge it should have long previous practice in command, and rather over the great than the small.' Here are my lords your brothers, your nephews, and your cousins, who will have charge of men-at-arms in the armies, and the rides afield, and how durst I lay commands on them? In sooth, sir, jealousies be so strong that I cannot well but be afeard of them. I do affectionately pray you to dispense with me, and to confer it upon another who will more willingly take it than I, and will know better how to fill it. Sir Bertrand, Sir Bertrand, answered the king, do not excuse yourself after this fashion. I have nor brother, nor cousin, nor nephew, nor count, nor baron in my kingdom, who would not obey you. And if any should do otherwise, he would anger me so that he would hear of it. Take therefore the office with a good heart, I do beseech you. Sir Bertrand saw well, says Froissart, that his excuses were of no avail, and finally assented to the king's opinion, but it was not without a struggle, and to his great disgust. In order to give him further encouragement and advancement, the king did set him close to him at table, showed him all the signs he could of affection, and gave him, together with the office, many handsome gifts and great estates for himself and his heirs. Charles V might fearlessly lavish his gifts on the loyal warrior, for Dugu's clan felt nothing more than binding upon him than to lavish them in his turn for the king's service. He gave numerous and sumptuous dinners to the barons, knights, and soldiers of every degree whom he was to command. At Bertrand's plate gazed every eye, so massive, chased so gloriously, says the poet chronicler Cuvelier, but Du Gusclin pledged it more than once, and sold a great portion of it, in order to pay, without fail, the knights and honorable fighting men of whom he was the leader. End of chapter twenty two, part five.